certainly a blessing, isn't it, to be able to come together this Sunday afternoon and appreciate, of course, the nature of not only the Word of God, but of certainly an opportunity to offer our worship unto the God of heaven. As you may have already observed and noted, it will be a continuation tonight in regard to the book of Isaiah. So I'll be inviting you to turn to that Old Testament major prophet. It's the first of the major prophets. And as we have given some thought over the previous number of lessons, nine uh, elements in the series completed, we have reflected on chapters 1 through 52. As we've done that, we obviously have selected various high-water marks from each of the chapters, taken some of the features and aspects of them, and attempted to make application to our life. Tonight, it'll be no different as we look at chapters 53 and following. And in particular, may I suggest that we will com complete the series, if, if all goes according to my plan, next Sunday night, as we will close the book in the 66th chapter. At least for this evening, in the 10th installment of the series, chapters 52, or rather 53 and following, Brother Cale read a moment ago from chapter 53, and in particular verses 4, 5, and 6, as he did that, may I simply use an introductory slide, the goal of which will be to remind us of the value, at least in one regard, of reflecting upon these major prophet books as well as the Old Testament in general. You and I certainly have a keen desire to understand, to appreciate, and to have an understanding connecting to the matters related to the New Testament. And yet, isn't it a fascinating thing to observe that the book of Isaiah is quoted directly 21 times in the New Testament. That doesn't count the number of indirect references, the number of other allusions. And so if one is to have as strong an understanding as would be desired of the New Testament, it will at least in part involve an appreciation of books like Isaiah in the Old Testament. There are times when that idea, in fact, offers a bit of challenge to us, especially when it comes to books like Revelation, where it's not the book of Isaiah that's the primary one, it's the book of Ezekiel, and also the book of Zechariah. And so, at some point, we may want to reflect especially on Zechariah as an added appreciation as you and I would come to books like the Revelation. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, though, tonight it's our desire to march forward in our study of the book of Isaiah. And as we do that, I, I will not hold your attention any longer than to say, we start tonight's lesson with a high-water mark in the book of Isaiah. If you ask a typical individual about anything in the 66, books of, 66 chapters of Isaiah, almost certainly the most well-known chapter is chapter 53. Almost certainly the chapter that comes so rapidly to mind is this one. Why don't you and I then take a few moments tonight, not only reflect on the 53rd chapter, but perhaps place in it the reasons as to why it occupies such a dramatic and profound place. Let's begin by listing as we read it. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison, and from judgment, and who, hath de- and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days." and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. You and I have not the slightest doubt what's described in that set of 12 verses. In fact, as you and I reflect upon it, I'm just going to invite that we step somewhat quickly through some of the features of the verses, drawing attention to certain of the statements that are made. And as we do that, Will it not be true that we will be in position to highlight even more the nature of what the Master, Jesus the Christ, has done for us? I'd like to pause, though, before we begin by saying this. As evident as it is that that chapter relates to Christ, and in fact foretold over 750 years prior to His coming to earth some of that which He would accomplish, I hope each of you would note with me that there have been some scholars through the ages who say that does not refer to Jesus, if you can believe it. They claim it refers in some way to a more general consideration. You see, they take out of it the majesty and power that it has. May I say that those who feel that way do not believe in predictive prophecy in the Bible. Think about what would happen to the Bible if you take out of it all the predictive prophecies. You would be left as a shell of what it now is. You would take out of it much of the power and the greatness of God who can foretell future events because He isn't bound by time as we are. You and I knowing this refers to the Christ, let's go back now and paint some vivid pictures in connection to Him. Verse number 2 points out that Jesus, in terms of handsomeness, that's not what made Him so attractive. If you just looked at him walking upon earth, he would have looked like an ordinary man. He wasn't blessed by outward appearance in the ways that some other Bible characters were. You may remember how beautiful Absalom was said to be in the Old Testament. 
Verse number 2 reminds us that's not what made Jesus so attractive. The beauty went a lot deeper than that. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected of men. Although it was true the common people heard Him gladly, Mark 12, 34, it was also true that those who were in position to do so and those who had an opportunity to wage matters of influence upon Him, they rejected Him. They despised Him. They often ridiculed Him. They accused Him of various and sundry things of which He was not guilty. No wonder in that connection and in that light, verse number 4 says, Surely He hath borne our griefs. The circumstances in which this one was placed is such that He bore the griefs of others. That verse will go on to say, He was esteemed as smitten and stricken of God. Do you recall there were some who, of course, wagged their heads at Him while He was hanging on the cross? They thought that He received justly for things that He had done. They perceived Him smitten. And yet you and I know that that was the foolish choices of those who themselves were guilty of sin, and all the while He had none. Note verse 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions. All of this that He endured... All of this, including the scourging, including the crucifixion, including the incredible weight that rested upon His being. When you recall in Luke 23, wasn't it there said that the sweat appeared, as it were, drops of blood on His head? Maybe in that connection and in that light, we begin to feel the burden that was resting upon Him. And all the while, it next goes on to say, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. You see, in order for you and I to have peace with God, we rightly should have been where He was. But then the verse closes by saying, With His stripes we are healed. Another took the beating that I deserved, and so did you, and yet we're the ones that are able to be healed because of it. And yet, in light of that, look at the sadness of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That connects dramatically to our lesson this morning, doesn't it? We've chosen the way of sin. We've chosen the pathway of iniquity and transgression. We weren't made to follow it. We did it of our own choice. And yet verse 6 closes by saying, Despite that foolish choice, despite what it required of the God of heaven, God laid on Him the iniquity of all of us. As you and I come to verse number 7, this one that is being described, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. How quick would your temper have gotten the better of you? How quickly would it have gotten the better of me? To have lashed out in rebuke at those who had driven the nails into his hands, and to have lashed out in vengeance upon those who had scourged him, to have lashed out to those so-called religious officials who stood there in the very character and delivered the sentence of blasphemy upon him and thus made demand for his death. And yet, he opened not his mouth. Don't you find it fascinating that the Ethiopian nobleman of Acts chapter 8, you recall he was riding in a chariot and he was reading what you and I would call Isaiah 53 verse 7. 
That's the very passage he asked Philip, who is this talking about? Who is the man describing here? Is it himself or somebody else? Philip began at that same scripture, Acts 8.35, preached to him Jesus and pointed out he wasn't talking about himself. He was referring down the stream of time to the one who would come that in fact fulfilled these, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Look at verse number 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut out of the land of the living. At an age that would be regarded as fairly young even for that day. And his life was stricken from him in the midst, you see, of that year, that particular time in his life. You may recall that in Daniel chapter 9, the midst of the year is there highlighted and pointed out to us that's when the Master would in fact be such that His death would be brought upon Him. Verse number 9, don't you find this remarkable? 750 years prior to the Lord's coming to the earth, Isaiah made it known he would have his grave with the wicked. Although he was not wicked, he would be treated as if he were. And he would be buried along with those who in that circumstance, you and I recall, he had thieves on each side of him, as if his crimes were like theirs. And yet he was innocent. And one of the thieves even acknowledged that in Luke 23. We justly receive what is our due. This man has done nothing amiss. And yet with it, Look at what else follows, which is just as remarkable. Verse number 9, with the rich in his death, though he never owned a house. Luke chapter 9 tells us, Son of man had not even where to lay his head in terms of that which he owned, and yet in his death he would be with the rich. How could that be? You and I might realize that though some would perceive an apparent contradiction in this, we know well about Joseph of Arimathea. We know well about those who in John 19 came to prepare the body and see to its burial. And so it was that the prophecy of Isaiah came to pass precisely as indicated. We aren't finished. Verse number 11. I'm sorry, verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You and I know the anguish that it brought to the Father. So much so that Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 1. Yet you and I know there is a word please here. The Father as well as the Son knew the great benefit to the human family because of these activities. Is it any more amazing to notice it says in verse number 11 that He shall be satisfied... When God looks upon the travail that the Master endured and that which was inflicted upon Him, He will be satisfied in light of the penalty for sin. That did it. Oh, how marvelously that did it. Let's finish it up in verse number 11. My righteous servant, that's a reference to Jesus, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many. 
It almost is enough to bring tears to her eyes, isn't it? To see Isaiah as he was right there so many years before the Master came, not just as a reflection of Jesus' life, but as you can see what he accomplished in his death, the blessing and benefit to one and to all. And so you'll notice on that slide, I've been very brief as you come to the bottom of it, highlighting just a few of the things which were mentioned within it. I call to your attention the fact he was rejected by men, the fact of the abundant sorrows that rested upon him, the features of the death that he endured, not because of matters connected to himself, but because of things that others had done. One final thing, having to do with what's at the bottom of that slide, another emphasis upon verse 11, how that all of this, he bore the iniquities of others. With all of that in mind, it's no wonder this is the high water mark of the book of Isaiah. But with it, it at least prompts us to ponder some of those chapters that follow. Chapter number 54 isn't nearly as well known as 53. And in fact, it seems to me far more likely that it would be easier to connect its main message with the chapter before it as well as the chapter after it. I would only call to your attention one quick thing, and that is the rather poetic way that the chapter begins. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Bring forth into singing and cry aloud. We'll pause right there and ask this. That death of the Holy One we just saw in chapter 53, who would benefit from this? We already noticed in the previous chapter, he said many would be those that would benefit and that would be justified. But look at this. When you and I, and perhaps those of that day, thought many, maybe our thought was only Jews. But would you notice verse 1 of chapter 54? Who were those that were barren? He isn't talking about a woman who couldn't bear children. He's talking about a group of people who, under the character of the old law, they were regarded as outcasts, and they were regarded as those insignificant. It was the Gentiles. We begin in some ways in chapter 54. And for many of the chapters that follow, in one way or another, there will be references to that grand Gentile nation. They, too, will be blessed by the death of Christ. They too will enjoy the forgiveness of sin due to the shedding of His blood. It will not be merely Jews and those regarded as barren, namely Gentiles, at least from a spiritual standpoint, they too would bear. They too would bring forth fruit unto God. Aren't you and I blessed in the New Testament to see a number of examples of that? As Paul would go to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1 and state to them, the burden he felt to preach to them? Aren't you amazed too that Luke, the beloved physician, was a Gentile and how he wrote for us so much of the New Testament? But as you and I come to chapter 55, let's put some of that into this perspective. Beginning in verse number 6, the text says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the, right, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
I've invited you to consider a few brief comments connected to that pair of verses. But isn't it amazing how strongly the impetus is, is phrased? Seek the Lord while He may be found. How often does the Bible encourage us, encourage one and all to seek the Lord? Many, many occasions I've listed only a handful. Would you notice Deuteronomy 4.29 when even Moses encouraged the children of Israel to seek the God of heaven? As he did that, that's only a foretaste of texts such as 1 Chronicles 16. David, the beloved singer of ancient Israel, there rather dramatically said, Seek him evermore. Perhaps one final text. The 105th Psalm, verse 4, again says it rather directly. Today the message is no different. I would offer this thought, though. Verse number 6 does add this interesting phrase. While he may be found. Doesn't that suggest that there may well come a time in your life or mine when, although we at one time were near to him and might well have been easily able to pursue him, Circumstances in life can change. We may never again be as close as we once were to obeying the gospel. I'm sure you know of individuals like I do. There was a time when their heart would race when the invitation song was sung. They'd grip that pew in front of them so that their knuckles would turn white. They never came forward. You know it was on their mind. They said enough, it was clear. But they never did it. A decade passes, maybe two. Circumstances in life are such that things are very different. Now their heart is seared. The gospel have a hard time getting through that old hard heart now. There was a time that God was near. There was a time that the opportunity was so open. Oh, how important it is to seek the Lord while He may be found. That's true of all of us, though. Circumstances in life can so often bring changes that may well include our death. It may well include other matters wherein we are never as close as we once were. I would at least offer that thought that Isaiah challenged the people of his day to understand the urgency of the hour, the careful thoughts of the moment. That very idea is one that will be vital for us and always is. As you keep that in mind, though, look at what quickly follows in the next verse. It's not only seeking Him while He may be found, but that next verse reminds us those demands that were the case for ancient Israel. Let the wicked man forsake his way. You can't come to God living the way you always have. That isn't how it works. He demands repentance, as we learned this morning, and that was true even of that ancient day. The wicked man's got to forsake his way. The unrighteous man has got to stop thinking the way he did. And today, isn't that a reminder of the purity that the God of heaven would ask of us and insist of us? That kind of description closes verse 7. He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon that plan of salvation that we described this morning, as sweet as that thought is, notice here, the pardon of God was available in the sense that it was a promised thing predicated upon the nature of the God of heaven. What about the chapters that follow? 
What about other wonderful truths to be seen even from that ancient time? May I invite you to turn to the opening pair of verses in chapter number 57. This, I suspect, is an easily overlooked passage, but it contains within it some remarkable words of comfort and some words of great ease for those who are children of God. Listen as, as I read. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now that begins in a somewhat negative light, at least in one standpoint. The righteous man perishes. He dies just like the wicked man will. But it goes on to say this, No man layeth it to heart. May I offer to you that which is no great revelation. This world is such that the majority are not right with God, and quite often it's the case that when the righteous pass on and leave the character of this earth, there often isn't a great deal of sadness shown. There's often not a great deal connected to affliction in regard to the minds of those that are left behind. Our world in general, you see, doesn't often feel a whole lot about the death of the righteous. You and I know the world has its way of doing things. It condones what it likes, and it approves that which it finds pleasing, and quite often that's a hated thing for the Christian. We don't think the way they do, and we don't behave the way they do, and we sure don't talk the way they do. And so when the righteous man dies, quite often a large company of those in the world will really not feel much of a pang about that death. You and I know that all too well. But look at how this verse goes on. Verse 2, He, that's that righteous man, he shall enter into peace. He leaves this life and goes to one better than this. And not only that, they shall rest in their beds. These that have died in the Lord, they're able to pursue rest. They don't have to be encumbered with this travail of sin that's left behind. That verse closes by saying, each one walking in his uprightness. Doesn't that sound a lot like Revelation 14, 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. I would simply say that although Isaiah wrote this, prior to the time the Lord came to the earth, there was at least references powerful reminders about the blessed state of the righteous dead and the loveliness that goes with it. Aren't you thankful for the Bible's promises on that point? I know we all are. It is for that reason. Look at how it's restated in Isaiah 59, verse number 8. Turn over a couple of chapters, Isaiah 59, 8. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whoever goeth therein shall not know peace. I mention that verse because of its reference to peace. There's a statement there about a group of people who don't know any. Now, you and I have just learned the righteous enjoy peace. He's clearly speaking about the unrighteous, the disobedient, those who have not answered the call of the God of heaven. He said they don't know any peace. 
now turn back to chapter 57. In some way, this is the strongest way that truth is asserted, it seems to me, in the entirety of the Old Testament. May I point your attention to verses 20 and 21 of Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. No peace now, no peace then. There isn't any. Now, I'll grant you that those who live wickedly may appear to have some element of peace upon earth. They can appear jolly, filled with laughter, filled with the matters which this world can often offer them, and seemingly living up in the midst of all of it. And yet in Psalm 73, we're reminded that's only a veneer. Their soul is struggling beneath the burden of their sin which has not been forgiven. And the psalmist there declared he understood this when he came to the sanctuary. When he reflected upon the teaching of the Word of God, then all of this became clear. Aren't we thankful it could be clear to us as well? There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked, aren't you amazed they're likened to the troubled sea? You and I often have studied about the Sea of Galilee, and we know when storms raged on that sea, how tempestuous it could be, how life-threatening it could be. He described it this way, waters cast up mire and dirt. Those waves dredge the bottom of that sea, and they pull up mire and dirt and often cast it upon the shore. He said that's the way the wicked are. There's not calmness like a sea at rest. There's not tranquility and serenity connected to the basic nature of what their soul most needs and desires. Like the troubled sea, it cannot rest. As chapter 57 closes, we now have seen that blessedness of chapter 53 has highlighted for us the beauty of righteousness. Let's come to chapter 58. As you open that chapter with me, you'll find that what appears to be a very strange circumstance is presented. But I believe we can understand the strangeness. Let me start reading in verse number 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Doesn't that sound wonderful? God describes a people, they seek me daily. They have a desire, it seems, to come before me. That sounds fantastic. I haven't finished the verse. And forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. There appears to be a description of a group of people, and it seems as if it was so positive. They seek me daily. They have a desire to approach unto me, and as grand as that sounds, it takes a dramatic turn for the worse in the next verse. Wherefore have ye fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? 
Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? The next verse is going to offer an explanation, but maybe we ought to just fill in the detail even at this point. The children of Israel were those under description. They were making the appearance of approaching God. They were giving the appearance of daily seeking His ways. In verse number 3, they were declaring fasts. They were, in fact, going through the activities connected to fasting. In verse number 3, we notice it says, In these fasts you find pleasure. Now, you and I know a fast wasn't for that purpose. In fasting, one would afflict your soul to do without something, the whole purpose of which was to draw closer to God. The purpose of fasting wasn't pleasure. Just so someone could shake your hand and compliment you and say, what a great thing you're doing. Furthermore, exact all your labors. It appears as if there was some monetary exchange connected to what they were called fasting. Doesn't sound like much of a fast. Verse number 4, here's why you're fasting. For strife and debate. You're doing it just to stir up and be seen of others. That's not all. To smite with a fist of wickedness. What you're doing in this fasting is really connected more to wickedness than anything else. And not only that, Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice heard on high. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew 6. They were fasting to be seen of men. That's what they were doing in Isaiah's day. Verse number 5 then will go on to say, Is it such a fast that I've chosen? Is this what I want fasting to be like, God said? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Now look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? This is what your fasting should be like. To loose the bands of wickedness. To understand what's wrong and to not engage in it. And in the purity of these fastings to come to know God and His will better. He goes on to say to undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. And that you break every yoke. Any connection to sin, any connection to iniquity, to break those connections and those associations, and to pursue in faithfulness the God of heaven. Their fasting wasn't like this. Isn't that a grand lesson how genuine religion is supposed to be? It has never been something that's just an outward show. Don't you find it shameful then to hear some describe baptism as an outward show of an inward grace? If that's not insulting, I don't know what it is. To think that baptism is no more than that. That somehow that is a description of what it's supposed to be. As you close this particular slide with me, the appreciation that goes within this, what actually is. What they thought service to God was in these fasts, God said, this isn't service at all. It's not what I desired. It's not what I asked. One great lesson in that then surely for us would be this. God sees things the way that they really are. We might fool ourselves. We might cloud our judgment with what someone has told us. But God sees it the way it really is. 
Aren't we reminded that's what Jesus taught in Matthew 7? He spoke about a day when, in verses 21 to 23 of that very chapter, He pointed out that those that are the pleasing ones before God are those that do His will. Some are going to cry out, Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works. They thought they'd serve the Lord. But then the Master said, I never knew you. Never knew you. They had deceived themselves, apparently, or allowed someone else to be a part of that deception. But the Lord wasn't deceived. Aren't you and I thankful that the Bible tells it the way it is? And oh, how sweetly we need to appreciate that that steps on my toes as well as anybody else's. How that God's Word just tells it the way it is. As you and I close that slide, we have one final lesson of the night. It's taken from the opening verses of chapter 59. This is maybe the second most well-known text in the entire book. Because it places in such plainness what iniquity causes. Let's read and allow God through Isaiah to describe it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. Those people back then had the opportunity to hear. The opportunity to respond and react. It's not that God can't save. It's just he won't save you as long as you continue in this state. Now look at verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. It's not that it's impossible for God to hear. In your stay, He won't hear your prayers. And furthermore, your iniquities have separated from you and Him, driven you from the place of purity where He is, driven you from the place of faithfulness where He dwells. Might you and I remember then what sin does? It separates a person from God. That transgression separates us from Him. And that separation is a shameful thing. Jeremiah 3.25 would say it this way, All of us lie down in our shame. Our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Sin is shameful. It's putrid. It sickens the Lord. And somehow, isn't it amazing how it looks so attractive to us? Might we remember a text like Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide that so many of the New Testament matters that are connected to it remind us about that separation how that it drives us from the Lord, and yet when the blood of Christ cleanses our sin, it closes that chasm and brings us back to the faithful side of the faithful one. As we close this lesson tonight, in some ways making preparation for chapters 60 through 66, which we will look at next time, may I say that a foundation has been laid and that many truths in those chapters will at least be connected to what we have seen presented to us in these chapters tonight. In the closing of this lesson, maybe an invitation, maybe a conclusion would be in order. The book of Isaiah is a thrilling account. Thrilling in the sense of what it describes is the situation concerning you and me. We're the ones whose sins the Lord carried to Calvary.
We're the ones who, in fact, were described as the beneficiaries of chapter 53. The Lord laid on Him the iniquities of all of us. Isaiah 53, 6. You and I can be able to rejoice just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 40. After Philip preached to him and he obeyed the gospel, the text says he went on his way rejoicing. Tonight, as an alien sinner or as one who could come back to his or her first love, we too could rejoice. The angels are prepared to do it. In Luke chapter 15, we read about how that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents, over ninety and nine that need no repentance. If there's someone in this assembly tonight who perhaps faithful at one time is not this evening, we want you to understand it is not a disgraceful thing to walk down this aisle. It's true, your heart might beat a little fast. And maybe you could think somewhat about the circumstances of life that brought you to this point, and that might be emotional. But may I suggest to you the clearness of conscience that's felt, Hebrews 9.14, after the finality of the event, the sweetness of being able to leave right with God and knowing that you're a faithful servant to Jesus Christ and your name is in the book of life, there's no substitute for that blessing. There's nothing on earth that'll equal it. Because you see, it rests above what this earth has to offer. If tonight we could be of some assistance, help in any way, we want you to know that we're here. The Pippin congregation strive to present that which is the Word of God. The book of Isaiah will remind us and ask us to realize yet again the great opportunity that God has of wishing to save. But He allows us to make the decision. And tonight, if there's anyone here that would like to make that, in a public way in which we might assist, we'd like to offer the Lord's invitation and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.